This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we reapply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to North by Northwest, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Ernest Lehman, starring Cary Grant, Eva Murray Saint, James Mason, and Martin Landau. All right, Dad, what is your relationship with this movie? This is a movie that I saw years ago, and I, I want to say my, it was something that my dad suggested, and uh, I have watched this movie virtually once a year for the last, I don't know, 35, 40 years, so I have a long relationship with it. It's just so smooth, it's so fun, it's so well done. Cary Grant is so good in this and uses his talents and his level of sophistication and such so well that it's just, I know that a lot of people have other Hitchcock films higher in the list of great Hitchcock films, but there's just so much in this that's so quintessential Hitchcock that it's just one of my favorite films of Hitchcock and one of my favorite films of all time. So I would agree with you that I think there's a definite difference between favorite and best. The best Star Wars movie is different than my favorite Star Wars movie. The best Hitchcock movie is different than my favorite Hitchcock movie because this is my favorite Hitchcock movie, but I don't think this is the best. And my relationship to this, like almost every Hitchcock movie and frankly most major classic movies, is primarily through you. I remember watching this movie probably around 10, and I've probably, like you, Watch this at least once every year, if not more, since about that time. So for going on almost 20 years, I've probably seen this movie just that many times. And this is my favorite. It's the most energetic. It's the most fun, I think, of any of these. It's really fast-paced, and yet there doesn't ever seem to be too much danger that it seems scary or apprehensive or there's like any major anxiety. It's just kind of a fun romp to be on because there really doesn't seem to be any lost pace during the course of this movie. Yeah. It's just, it's just such a well done movie. There are a few flaws. And when we get to the questions at the end, I got a couple that I've noted because I specifically looked for them while I was watching this time around. So I do think we need to note this part of it. This is a revisit episode This is the fourth revisit episode that we've done for the show. And if fans of the show will remember that we revisited three movies last season, one for you that was Back to the Future, one for me that was Raiders of the Lost Ark, and one for a guest, Jaws. So we do these periodically from time to time. You may already know that this is not the normal format of the show. Instead, we primarily will be focusing on the grading of the movie and compare it to what we did in the original episode. If you want to listen to the original episode, it was episode two. In fact, it was done on this exact same date two years ago. So, yeah, it's uh, kind of some synergy with that. 
However, the reason for doing this is that in this case, I picked North by Northwest this year. You will have an opportunity to pick a movie we revisited as well at some other point during the year. This was because it was our second ever episode and the show, the categories, the list, and our criteria have evolved a lot over the two intervening years. So when we look back at this list, sometimes a particular film jumps out at us as to one where we think we might either be too low or too high on this list when we first did it. In this case, I think we both feel generally this was too low on the list now looking back at our original grades and its current placement on the list. So we want to give this another look over and see where the evolution of the show meets with where we think this movie probably should be. And once we've done that, we'll see where it kind of falls in the general greatness of the movie. Because right now, I, I know when we start really comparing the categories, our scores are very likely to drastically change. So as we do each week, let's jump into a basic plot summary and recognition background for the movie. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Madison Avenue ad man Roger Thornhill, Cary Grant, is mistaken for George Kaplan, a government agent. He's kidnapped and taken to meet a mysterious man, Lester Townsend, James Mason. The man wants to know what information he has. Unable to answer, Thornhill is forced to drink excessively and put in a car for a staged accident. While Thornhill is able to escape, he is still in imminent danger and needs to piece together what happened. However, when Thornhill meets the real Townsend, Townsend is suddenly murdered and Thornhill becomes the prime suspect. Now sought for murder, he goes out to find the real Kaplan. Aided by Eve Kendall, Eva Marie Saint, Thornhill travels across the country, sidestepping attempts to kill him, to finally clear his name. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Cary Grant as Roger Thornhill, Ava Marie Saint as Eve Kendall, James Mason as Philip Van Damme, Jesse Royce Landis as Clara Thornhill, Leo G. Carroll as the professor, Josephine Hutchinson as Mrs. Townsend, Philip Ober as Lester Townsend, and Martin Landau as Leonard. Recognition for this movie? North by Northwest is listed among the canonical Hitchcock films of the 1950s and is often listed among the greatest films of all time. After its first screening, reviewers for The New Yorker and The New York Times immediately hailed it as a masterpiece of comedic, sophisticated self-parody. It was nominated for Best Film Editing, Art Direction, and Original Screenplay, all of which it lost that year to Ben-Hur and Pillow Talk. In 1995, North by Northwest was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the United States Library of Congress. In June 2008, after polling over 1,500 people from the creative community, North by Northwest was acknowledged as the seventh best film in the mystery genre from the AFI's 10 Top 10. It was also listed as number 40 in AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies from 1998, number 4 in AFI's 100 Years 100 Thrills, and number 55 in AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition from 2007. Did you know? While filming Vertigo, 1958, Sir Alfred Hitchcock described some of the plot of this project to frequent Hitchcock leading man and Vertigo star James Stewart, who naturally assumed that Hitchcock meant to cast him in the Roger Thornhill role and was eager to play it. Actually, Hitchcock wanted Cary Grant to play the role. By the time Hitchcock realized the misunderstanding, Stewart was so anxious to play Thornhill that rejecting him would have caused a great deal of disappointment. 
So Hitchcock delayed production on this movie until Stewart was already safely committed to filming Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder from 1959 before officially offering him the role in this movie. Stewart had no choice but to turn down the offer, allowing Hitchcock to cast Grant, the actor he had wanted all along. Did you know? This movie has been referred to as the first James Bond film due to its similarities with splashily colorful settings, secret agents, and an elegant, daring, wisecracking lead man opposite a sinister yet strangely charming villain. The crop duster scene inspired the helicopter chase in From Russia with Love from 1963, and another Bond nod to this film is the person in the couchette scene used in a slightly different way in the 1973 007 film Live and Let Die. Did you know? Cary Grant found the screenplay baffling and midway through filming told Sir Alfred Hitchcock, quote, it's a terrible script. We've already done a third of the picture and I still can't make head nor tail of it. Hitchcock knew this confusion would only help the movie. After all, Grant's character had no idea what was going on either. Grant thought the movie would be a flop right up until its premiere, where it was rapturously received. Did you know? The scene where the crop duster is chasing and shooting at Thornhill was filmed with a real airplane, while the shot where the plane crashes into the fuel truck was done using large models of both truck and plane. Did you know? Rather than go to the expense of shooting in a South Dakota woodland, Sir Alfred Hitchcock planted 100 ponderosa pines on an MGM soundstage. Did you know? Thornhill appears on the left side of the screen for almost the entire movie. Did you know? It was journalist Otis L. Guernsey Jr. who suggested to Alfred Hitchcock the premise of the man mistaken for a non-existent secret agent, which was used for North by Northwest from 1959. He was inspired, he said, by a real-life case during World War II known as Operation Mincemeat, in which British intelligence hoped to lure Italian and German forces away from Sicily, a planned invasion site. A cadaver was selected and given an identity and phony papers referring to invasions of Sardinia and Greece. The Man Who Never Was, 1956, recounted the operation. Did you know? In Francois Truffaut's book-length interview, Hitchcock Truffaut from 1967, Sir Alfred Hitchcock said that MGM wanted this movie cut by 15 minutes so its length would run under two hours. Hitchcock had his agent check his contract, learned that he had absolute control over the final cut, and refused. Let's take a quick break, and we will be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Normally, in this part of the show, we would go to our general categories as we would do best performance, elevator pitch, and the like, best scene, that sort of thing. In this version of the show, however, in revisits, we don't need to do that as we feel we've already done that in the original episode. If you'd like to go back and listen to all of that, that was episode two, which debuted on March 5th, 2020. Uh, you can look for that episode in the feed because I think all of our stuff is there. Otherwise, go to gmotepodcast.captivate.fm for all of our episodes. So instead, we're going to go right to the Stanley rubric and we're going to compare it against our original scores and see where we think the score should change or not. So let's start with Legacy. So the original Legacy score on this one was a 9. Do you want to go first or second? I will go first. I think that... Actually, I might go down a little bit from our original score. Um, I'm going to go with the industry as being a 4.5, simply because it's one of these films that is highly respected but not ranked in the top. It's kind of like everybody's number five of Hitchcock films type of deal. 
And I think a lot of critics, the fact that they sought this one out as one of the early films for preservation shows the level involved. And the fact that this really did set the standard for what became the spy genre throughout the 1960s. I'm going to go for the industry a 4.5. For for the public, this is a film, again, where those aficionados of Hitchcock love the film. A lot of people are not as familiar with it. So I'm going to give it a 3.5 for that for a total of 8. Okay. I think there are a couple of things that I will glob on to as far as what you mentioned there. It being one of the top five Hitchcock movies, I would generally agree. I don't think this is ever mentioned as Hitchcock's best film. I think there are three movies that are in the running for Hitchcock's best film, and they're pretty much interchangeable depending on whom you're asking. It's Psycho, Rear Window, or Vertigo. Right now, I think for the most part, especially after the last Sight and Sound poll from, I think, 2012 or 2011, it's probably Vertigo, and that one has kind of grown in stature over the years, and that's right now, I think, the general consensus for the best Hitchcock film. But this is a movie, I wouldn't even say it's number five. I think this is one where it's probably number three on most people's lists, and it kind of is one of those movies when we talk about ranked choice voting, This would be a movie that would increase because it would never be anybody's first, but it's probably everybody's second or third best Hitchcock movie. I think it's well done. I think from an industry standpoint, is it the creme de la creme? No. It's never going to be mentioned in the same breath as The Godfather or Citizen Kane, but it's kind of always lingering under the surface. I think if you asked 1,500 critics and industry people and such, this is probably comfortably between maybe about 30 and 60 in just general movie rankings, at least among like American films. Because even though this was a Hitchcock production, it was an American film. So I went with a 4.5 for them. From an audience standpoint, other than maybe Rear Window, I think this might be the competition for the most watched Hitchcock movie. I don't think as many people have seen Vertigo as have probably seen this movie, and it's because it's probably one of the easiest ones to watch. And it's the one that's probably most widely available to watch. And I don't think it has the immediate name recognition of something like Psycho that's lived in the American consciousness for 60 years at this point and has that immediate attachment you think of when you say the word Psycho. That's automatically what you think of. But it's got a recognizable title. I think more people have probably seen this than most other Hitchcock movies. And by that assumption, I can't give it a full five. I don't think this is like one of the most popular movies and won't be because, I mean, you're competing against a lot of movies that people know from the last 20 or 30 years like Rain Man or Silence of the Lambs, Titanic, etc. But this is probably one of those classic movies that falls in kind of a decent range. I think I could be talked down to a 4, but I'm going to go with a 4.5, so that's a 9 overall. And the average between us would then be an 8.5, so the category did slightly deviate. It dropped by half a point. Impact significance. Our original score on this one was a five. I think this might go up. Uh, yeah. Do you want to go first? I certainly can. Go ahead. I think we were way off on this score originally. Yes, we were. If this truly sets off the action spy thriller genre, as you alluded to in discussing Legacy, 
it needs to move much higher in its overall impact due to the explosion of these types of films, even within the next 10 years after its initial release. Within five years after this movie, you had two James Bond movies, Charade, and you had, I think, the original Pink Panther all in that span. So, I mean, this is kind of the template for what would become at least the 60s spy cool action thriller. Even though Roger Thornhill is never actually a spy, he kind of becomes the leading man character, as we mentioned in the Did You Know and Recognition sections. Even another Hitchcock film, Topaz. Okay. In 64, I believe. No, I think that's closer to like 65, 66. I don't think so, maybe. Now that I'm thinking about it, Marty was 64, 63, 64, so maybe. I, I didn't think he did anything except The Birds from like 1960 to 1965, because he was doing so much TV. No, because Marnie was 63, so there's a few of them in there. But anyway. So for industry, the critics' reviews were laudatory at the time. It was nominated for a couple of lesser awards, but I would say this is possibly one of the greatest movie years ever. I mean, you think about some of the movies we've already covered on this show, and you could really have expanded the best picture list to include at least eight different movies that I think all could be considered at least for not only inclusion to do on this show, but realistically inside the top maybe 100, let alone 200 greatest films of all time. We had Pillow Talk, we had Rio Bravo, two films we've done on the show. You had Ben-Hur, Some Like It Hot, another movie we've done on the show. So it was not lacking for the amount of films it was competing against this year. And also Hitchcock movies were generally thought of as more entertainment than like great works of cinema as they are now. So even though we had some of that, I don't hold it necessarily against it too much. It's also one of the defining movies of Hitchcock's career. And this is part of this great Hitchcock run that I don't think is really rivaled by just about anybody. Steven Spielberg might be the only guy that could come close because he had, I think about five movies and four of them are like some of the greatest movies of all time that we've already reviewed. And one of them was a dud. But Hitchcock had four consecutive movies that were all like some of them among the best films ever made. Vertigo 58, North by Northwest 59, Psycho 60, The Birds 63. Like that is an absolute slate. And a run that I don't think is paralleled by just about anybody. So if you're talking from even that standpoint, one of the all-time great directors in his biggest hit streak that he's probably ever had. I don't know if you could compete with that. For an audience perspective, this was the fifth highest grossing movie domestically and third worldwide that year. So I'm going to go with a 4.5 as well for the industry. I'm going to go with a 4.5 for the audience for a nine total. For perspective, the top eight movies domestically that year were Sleeping Beauty, Rio Bravo, Pillow Talk, North by Northwest, Some Like It Hot, The Nun Story, Anatomy of a Murder, and Ben-Hur. Yeah. Those are some of the great classics, and they're all in one calendar year. I know. In a year, or excuse me, in a time where we maybe had 120 films at, a, at one particular year. I know. We're, 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 we've been talking about the fact that picking films by decade... And it is going to be extremely difficult to pick 10 films in the 50s. Just to narrow it to 10. Yeah. I will, in advance, tell you I'll help you with the math, because I also had a 9 
I see. Public, it it played very well in the box office. This is not only the height of popularity of Hitchcock for film, but also for television. The biggest problem Hitchcock had is is the because he was also doing television, which was kind of perceived as a lesser medium and kind of poo-pooed by Hollywood, they kind of always did pan his films. You know, but I mean, the simple fact is, is Hitchcock loved to be creative. He loved to be working. He loved to have things done. And he grew up extremely poor. <laughs> so if he has an opportunity to make money doing television too, he was going to take it because he had very large tastes. Everything from the uh, wine he drank to the food he ate to the cigars he smoked. And so the money was good. But I think that that's one of the reasons why Hollywood never recognized his true craft until much later. But that being said, I think the public really appreciated this film and understood how great it really was. And so I went with a 4.5 simply because, the, the I mean, to this day, if you mention anybody who knows the film North by Northwest, you remember the crop dusting point. It's it's so iconic, and it started that whole bizarre method of villains uh, going to great lengths to uh, kill the protagonist. And as far as industry itself goes, again, I think the industry wasn't Truffaut and uh, Hitchcock and their whole conference within ten years of this. Wasn't it 66? The book was released in 67. Okay, so it was within the 10 years. And by then, you know, it, it took a French director to really emphasize what Americans were taking for granted. So from an industry, I think that uh, the fact that other directors were realizing what Hitchcock was accomplishing. So I wanted a 4.5 for the industry for a 9. All right. Novelty. You kind of stole my thunder a little bit on this one. I was going to mention several of your points in novelty and classicness. The original score on this one was a six. My new novelty score personally would be a nine. While Hitchcock made other spy movies and other thrillers, the 39 steps, he had done multiple other psychological thrillers. There is no Sure. Saboteur fits in this. And frankly, I think in many ways is kind of a early cursor for what this movie is. It kind of sets a lot of the template, but doesn't necessarily follow the same storyline. It's not a like for like remake that he did when he did the man who knew too much, but realistically there is not another film in the Hitchcock genre that is this action packed, this well paced that is as brightly colored that has the, sophistication of the set pieces that this movie does there's really nothing within that and so i think it's unique even among hitchcock films let alone just cinema generally and if this is the precursor for a whole genre of films that would carry across the next 10 20 30 years or at least be the editing pacing score model of a lot of action thrillers going forward i think this deserves much higher score than the original six this is a master craftsman at the height of his powers, working on one of his most unique films. I'll give it a nine. 
I could be persuaded up even higher than that. I'm going to just point one thing out that I noted, which is Cary Grant throughout this film is wearing a, a very well-tailored, uh, very expensive gray suit. And yet, you think of it, first of all, gray, because it's meant to show that he is just kind of a gray figure in the world around which he's now involved with all of the the espionage and the and the spies and the murderers and everything else. But yet, by the same token, if you look at the way that it's shot, he may be in gray, but the color is all around him so that this gray average person that was just Mr. Anybody is made to pop out of the actual scene, the, the cinematography around him. Everything around him is brighter and more brilliant in color so that he is always in contrast. And I, I thought that that was such a novel concept. It could not have been by happenstance. Uh, Hitchcock was too precise, too conniving, too too anal about this stuff to just have this as being just, oh, that's just the way it worked out. So I went with a 9.5. And the only reason I can't give it a 10 is simply because the whole concept of utilizing these key places, uh, Grand Central Station, uh, Mount Rushmore, he'd done another film, Saboteur, which I had mentioned. The, the climactic scene is on the uh, Statue of Liberty where uh, Norman Lloyd is or falls off uh, and dies. Same thing as here. It's just so, to some extent recycling of utilizing key scenes or locations that have broader and greater meaning than just in the film. And so that's the only reason I couldn't give it a 10. Yeah, but even by contrast to this, this seems to be the peak of a lot of other things that he'd done. Between this, Psycho, and Vertigo, and even The Birds, they're all heightened versions of previous work. I mean, when we talked about The Man Who Knew Too Much, the comment I think he made in the Truffaut book was, the original was done by an amateur, the second one was done by somebody who actually knew what they were doing. And realistically, when you want to talk the crop duster scene, that's unique by itself because, A, that probably couldn't have been done any time before that. But B, he knew exactly what he wanted and how to stage it by that point because he'd done so many other big set pieces. The Mount Rushmore scene is different than any other thing that he'd done because he'd done so many other precursor works, and he's now getting to the epitome of what it was to be a Hitchcock film. The musical score, while I wouldn't say this is the most notable Hitchcock score, I think I would still give credit to Psycho on that one because there's just the infamous moment from the shower scene that is so iconic that I don't think you could rival that one. But the height of the strings and the timpani and everything that's going heightens the action of this film in a way that I don't think any other score in any other Hitchcock movie really compares to, save for that one iconic moment in Psycho. But Psycho takes it for the horror aspects that have been part of Hitchcock's movies up to then. This movie takes it all of the action sequences, and Vertigo takes all of the suspense and the psychological thriller, and it dials all of them up to a 11 as far as I'm concerned. So 
while I don't think because of the run that he was on in this period of time, this like four movie run, and that you can really differentiate a ton between all of them, the fact that he was on such a high, thinks I think it raises the bar for what novelty had to be for him, let alone for anybody else. Well, just think of this, and this is a classic story. The uh, censors would not allow the ending scene in the in the train berth to be Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint embraced and leading into some heavy kissing with her on top. So they had to cut away. So what does Hitchcock do? He decides to do a side view of the train, and the train is going into a tunnel. Yeah, but that's all over movies from the 30s, 40s, and such. Except Hitchcock always found a way to do stuff like that. And I think it's notorious where the censors said you could no, you could not kiss for more than three seconds. So what did Hitchcock do? He had Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman participate in three or three second kisses with one or two seconds in between with some dialogue, so that ultimately their makeout scene is over two minutes of them kissing, but with breaks in between because it did not violate the code or the Hayes code. So he always found ways around this stuff that was novel in order to produce it. But again, I think that that's what we're talking about, the level of novelty that he would always find ways to push the envelope. All right, I'm going to change mine. I'm going to come up to your 9.5. So that'll make the math easier. It was originally going to be a 9.25. It'll now raise to a 9.5 because I think I've talked myself into it. Classicness. I know I normally let you go first, but I think I have some stuff to give before I we get to yours. The original classicness on this one was a 7.5. So much of this movie is dated by the Cold War and olden tactics of spying, although even that is starting to come around because the time is a flat circle and we're back into the Cold War days of imperialistic rivalry uh, just lately. But that being said, this is still well-paced. It doesn't have really any dull moments. The editing is fantastic. The music is still there. I still think it's most his most energetic movie. I think Ava Marie Saint's character is actually one of the stronger femme fatales of a Hitchcock movie. But it's still... The, the one drawback to that character is we still have to make Cary Grant, the non-spy, have to save her in the end. That's maybe the one thing where you could like give it some slight reduction. The other part that kind of doesn't sit well with modern sensibilities, other than the 20-year age difference between them, is the rather callous attitude of everyone in reaction to a DUI. That would not sit well today. So other than that, where it kind of slightly takes you out of the movie, there are, in my opinion, four absolutely indelible scenes to this movie of not only Hitchcock movies, but just film generally. And the crop duster scene is likely a top 10 indelible scene of all time let alone the Escape Down Rushmore might be in the top 100. So I think this holds up from multiple angles as far as score, editing, cinematography, set pieces, action, etc. I'm going to go with a 9. Well, I went with a 9 as well. The only thing I would point out is, is, again, there seems to be some level of lack of diversity, but that's more a, a indictment to the time period. And the one thing that I found a little questionable is 
but something that Hollywood seems to continue to this day to do, which is a, I think he was about 56, 57 when he did this film, Cary Grant. And he was 55. 55 with a 26-year-old Eva Marie Saint. He was 35. That's why I said 20-year age difference. I looked it up. Okay, but in the film, she says she's 26. Yeah, well, okay, she was not. Well, I'm just saying. It's not as big a gap as like John Wayne with, what's her name from Real Angie Dickinson. Angie Dickinson. Yes. Which we did go through in episode 25. Still continues. Anyway, so, but I went with a nine because of just so much that was about this film that has become iconic as a result of it. So I'm going to propose something. We, we always mention diversity as part of this. I think that you have to measure it within its own time period. I don't know if I can really give a movie from the late 50s, early 60s points reduction significantly for lack of diversity when there really wasn't any standard-wise in all of Hollywood at this point. So if you measured against that, as opposed to like even something from the 80s where you were starting to get some inroads, but like really the 90s is where I can start to hold true diversity against it from at least a racial perspective. If you want to say gender-wise, sure. But I think where you might give it an extra credit for diversity is how strong the Eva Marie Saint character tends to be, even in a cast among all other men. I think she holds her own in this one in a way that I wish she was in more movies that I think were classic. She really only has two primary big roles in movies, and unfortunately, I wish I could have seen her in more. It's this one and On the Waterfront, which we haven't gotten to yet, and I think she's fantastic in both. But regardless of that, I I don't know if I can propose diversity to be slightly changed. I don't want to hold against Citizen Kane that it only has white people in it by comparison to Casablanca having one of the primary characters be black. I want to promote Casablanca for taking a chance on a black character that Citizen Kane did not, but I'm not going to knock Citizen Kane for having a lack of diversity in 1942, if that makes sense. Excuse me, 1941. Yes, I understand. Rewatchability. Well. Oh, excuse me. The original rewatchability on this was an eight. I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, At the time, I was worried that we were going to start getting numbers too high, so I purposely went down. When you have a film that you own and that you purposefully rewatch at least once a year, if not more frequently, I don't know how I can not give it a 10 for rewatchability. I probably have watched North by Northwest as much as any film in existence. So I'm going to give it a 10. I was very close on this one. I was very torn between a 9.5 and a 10. And I could not split the difference. This is like really on the knife's edge of where I have like my categories. There's about 15 movies that are all like 10s to me. And this is so close to that. But I didn't feel like I could give it a 9.5. Like it wasn't in that next tier. It's like in this weird purgatory gray area where... It's not one that I absolutely, every time I see it, I'm like, yeah, that's an easy rewatch and I'll just throw it on. But I've rewatched this movie just about as many times as you. So by that standard, I can't give it too much lower. So I split the difference and I went with a 9.75. Okay. So that is a 9.88 
average between us. And then finally, audience score. Originally, we had a 9.4 because we only had the Rotten Tomato scores. We have added in the Google scores since then, and that was a 90. So that will actually bring it to a 92 or a 9.2 points overall scale. With that being said, let's go and recompare all of these. Originally, in our first episode on this, we had a 9 for Legacy score. That actually has been reduced to an 8.5. Impact Significance, we had a 5, that has now gone up to a 9. Novelty, we had a 6, we now have gone to a 9.5. Classicness, we had a 7.5, that has now gone to a 9. Rewatchability, we had as an 8, it is now a 9.88. And Audience Score, we had a 9.4, that's been slightly reduced to a 9.2. Overall, we, in our original scoring, had it as a 44.9. It now currently has a 55.08. That's a significant increase. Yeah. Uh, Over 11 points difference. So uh, let's see here. Do you want to take a guess to where it is on the list? Seven or eight. Higher. Four? It is now number three. Okay. It is in between 12 Angry Men and Saving Private Ryan. Realistically, from the fact of where, you know, the fact of, I obviously I can't say where you would, but I would say that that's about accurate as far as I'm concerned, as far as my movie taste. That would push it inside the top 10 and pushing out Pulp Fiction from the top 10. The current top 10 as it stands when we're filming this and we're doing this well in advance, but Jaws, 12 Angry Men, North by Northwest, Saving Private Ryan, Raiders of the Lost Ark, All the President's Men, The Godfather, High Noon, The Best Years of Our Lives, and Casablanca. Okay. All right. Uh, I would not necessarily have expected nor necessarily picked that North by Northwest would be higher than both Casablanca and The Godfather, but that's where you got it. We may end up having to do a uh, revisit of Casablanca. We had planned on doing it. That was your pick. Remaining questions. You and I both have quite a few. Do you want to start first or second? Okay. So when he's leaving the train in Chicago, all right, we already know that he's going to be looking at a suit that's, you know, where he's a much taller man than Kaplan. When they show the red cap who gets the money, he's a scrawny little guy, old guy, right? There's no way his uniform is going to fit Cary Grant. At first glance, I would agree with you, but let me suggest something alternatively. Yes, that guy was probably at least a good foot shorter than him by what it at least appears on screen, but Cary Grant also wears his pants incredibly high. Like if he even just wears them around where the normal waist level is now, maybe you could get away with it. Maybe. That was the style in the late 50s. I understand. Everybody wore them high. I understand. Just saying. Suggesting an alternate theory. It wouldn't have mattered. All right. My first my first one up. Does the crop duster scene invent all of the ever-increasingly ridiculous ways that villains try to kill spies in movies instead of just shooting them when they have a chance? Yes, Mr. Bond. I intend for you to die. Let me kill you with frickin' sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their frickin' heads. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of any more ridiculous, like, villainy past this. And even this is still, like, grounded partially in reality. But by the time we get to, 
oh gosh, I'm trying to think like maybe Thunderball. It just gets ridiculous. Anyway, you have another one? No, I guess not. I mean, you, I could probably give you a few, but they're getting a little far afield, so why bother? How did Van Damme get access to Townsend's home, and how did he know it would be available? I don't know. He's a spy. We also never get his true connection, why he's in the picture of the UN people. Like, we, we don't know anything about this character. I don't think it actually matters in the overall, but we get almost no background on the guy. Mm-hmm. We have no idea who those people are. Yep. All right, this isn't an exact remaining question for the movie itself, but if you were mistaken for George Kaplan, how long do you think you'd last? I'm not sure. I think I have a little bit a little bit more savvy than a lot of people and a little more intelligence and can do things and, and such, but from the sheer fact that in today's world it would be incredibly difficult because... Who carries cash? He's paying for all that stuff by cash. Everybody's using credit cards now. And the minute you get identified as a as a potential murderer, all of your credit cards are going to be monitored. Well, not only monitored, they may lock everything. No, they won't lock it because they'll they'll trace where you're spending the money. And it will be almost instantaneous. You choose your credit card at a gas station, they're going to be there within three minutes. Probably. You're, you're probably accurate on that. So I can tell you that I would not get past the staged accident portion of this. If somebody poured an entire bottle of liquor, I may not even make it to the car. Like, I don't drink that heavily anymore. And I know you're more familiar with the dad juice than I am. But I, I can just tell you, I may have alcohol poisoning before they ever get me to the car. Well, I can't imagine how he could be forced to drink an entire bottle of bourbon and not vomit. No shit. But anyway, yeah, I, but you I just don't... can't think of Cary Grant vomiting. I mean, it just they're, they're, it would just destroy the sophistication. Yeah, but yeah, I, I would not last very long. I think it's kind of unlikely that anybody would believe that this movie could actually take place. All right, finally, and I know you don't have to have a definitive answer on this one, but I'm just going to throw it out for the sake of throwing it out. Is 1959 the greatest movie year ever? It very well may be. I I would have to look at other years, but it's got to be pretty darn close. I gave you that list of the top eight domestically as for performance. This has so many top echelon greatest films of all time that were nominated for Best Picture, and it has some below the awards that could have been in almost any other year nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. Rio Bravo, North by Northwest, Pillow Talk were not nominated for Best Picture. I know. All three, I'm pretty sure, are members of the Library of Congress. Yeah, I, I, I think it would be, you would be hard-pressed to find another year. I think one of the few that I might pop up as potential alternatives is I know a lot of people have cited 1975 as being a huge year because you had all five Best Picture nominees that are all classics. I think 1994 would be close because you had Forrest Gump, you had Pulp Fiction, and you had Shawshank all in the same year. But I don't know how many years have six, seven, eight 
great all-time films. Some of that doesn't get the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. Like in the moment, there have only been a couple of years where I felt really strongly that there were probably three or four really great movies in a particular year. And I'd be satisfied with multiples winning best picture. And I think the last time that I felt that way was the parasite year where parasite, I think was like my number 15 film of that year, but I was fine with the statement that it made. I still thought that there were like three or four really great movies that year. This year, I think there are three or four pretty great movies. Then there's a tier where, yeah, okay, they're, I can understand why they're being appreciated. Not necessarily that I think they're exceptional films. And then there are probably three or four that are like, okay, we threw these on the list and they're good to watch. It's a recognition of film, but okay. You know, if this was still five best pictures, there's no way they would ever get close. Yeah. But then again, you don't know until you've had some level of hindsight. I know. And that's why we do the five years, so. All right. Any other remaining questions? None for me. All right. That'll finish it up for this revisit. And I think the next planned revisit, unless we have a guest submitted one in the near future, would be your choice of Casablanca. I don't know when that's going to be on the schedule, but look forward to that one eventually as well. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special. Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok at the handle at gmotepodcast. That's G-M-O-A-T podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.